Welcome to How Do You Write? I'm your host, Rachel Heron. On this podcast, I talk to authors about how they write, what their process is, and how their lives fit together. I'll keep each episode short so you can get back to writing. Well, hello, writers. Welcome to episode number 93 of How Do You Write? I'm Rachel Heron, and I am so glad that you're here today. Especially excited for this show. It is with Jeffrey Foucault, who is one of my favorite singers of all time. And I love him not only for his voice, but also mostly, I have to say, for his songwriting. Um, he is a songwriter of the highest caliber. He is a poet. I <laughs> I have to apologize in advance because I fangirl pretty damn hard on him. And he was a gentleman and put up with it throughout. Um, he is on the road as we recorded this. Uh, Blood Brothers is coming out today. So you should go get it. His voice is incredible and his writing is incredible. I'm telling you. Um, but for that reason, we don't have video portion for him. He's an old fashioned kind of guy. We recorded over the phone and bless his heart. He uh, hung with me on those technical difficulties, just like Brenda did last week with the Skype difficulties. It's just been a technically challenging week. Um, but we managed and the interview is fabulous. We completely veer from the questions. And some of my favorite interviews are those exactly the ones that veer all the way away because you're just connecting and talking and listening. And I really wanted a songwriter on the show and to have him on the show is just incredible. So I know you'll enjoy. A little bit of update before we jump into that. I have really good news that I can't share. So I'm one of those people. But I bet you can guess what it was. Um, The thing that I've been hopeful for for a while now happened. Actually, I got notification that it happened about five minutes before I talked to Jeffrey and kept my cool on that. I just pretended like it hadn't happened um, because otherwise I I would have just been losing my mind. And I did kind of lose my mind. It was such a good day that after I got off the phone with him and confirmed the good thing with my agent, uh, I went back to bed to just kind of stare at the back of my eyeballs. I, because sometimes I have a stress response that is like a fainting goat. I just fall right over on my side and and wait for the emotions to pass. So I did that. Um, But I will share that with you as soon as I possibly can, I promise. I'm sorry to be a tease about that. Um, New Patreon supporter, thank you, Eleanor Coase, is what I'm going to guess your last name is. I'm sorry if I butchered it. It's so wonderful to have you along. I hope you enjoy the essays. There's 17 of them up there. Um, Anybody else who would like to support can go to patreon.com slash Rachel. And thank you so, so very much, all of you who support. It means the difference to me in being able to do this and able being able to write the essays. Thank you with all my heart. Um, oh, this morning I started a new book. Yay. I have been plotting for once. Um, this time I'm going back to romance. I'm going to finish the Ballard Brothers series. And it's the third in the series. And I'd kind of lost the train of where that series was. It's been a while since I wrote romance. And I was talking to Jay Thorne, who is my podcast partner over at The Petal to the Metal. The Petal to the Metal. Go check it out. And Jay is a certified story grid instructor. And 
What that means is he has learned the story grid method that Sean Coyne came up with, and he is certified to teach it. Um, I have always felt like I have, I always love to learn new story structure ideas. We're all saying the same thing. We're all talking about stories with a beginning, a middle, and an end that satisfies a reader. However, there's a million ways to look at how to do that. And I've kind of taken what I love from all of them and incorporated them into my own system. Um, But I had been neglecting the story grid because honestly, that book is big and it looks confusing. And there's a lot of charts and numbers and I just wasn't into it. And Jay started talking with me about a month ago about my plot. It just came up organically in in our chats. And we have now done three plot fundamentals three plot fundamental episodes, one, two, and three. And basically, we plotted my next book together. And some of the things I learned from the story grid architecture were kind of mind-blowing. Like, I love them. Um, I've always been good at starting. I've always been good at having a compelling hook and an inciting incident. But of course, we all bog down around that soggy middle of a novel. And this method really kind of keeps you up and going. So if you're interested in that, go to the pedal to the metal on your favorite podcast device and look up plot fundamentals one, two, and three. And we had a really good time and we've had a massive response to it. Um, So go check it out, please. And also while I'm pimping stuff, I have two new writing retreats up. Um, Venice for next year in 2019 in April is up. It is available to be held. You can hold your spot. I'm doing it a lot earlier this year because it is so fantastic and it sells out so fast. So go check that out if you like. Also um, a more budget version in September. I'm going to be taking a group of writers to the Pigeon Point Lighthouse Hostel, which is on the West Coast near rugged Pescadero, a little bit south of Half Moon Bay. And it's a hostel. So these are dorm rooms. Um, You're you're, you're, sharing a dorm room with bunk beds, but we have the whole house. It's right on the cliffside. And there's a hot tub that overlooks the water that we can reserve if we want to. There's a fantastic restaurant a little bit inland. Um, so go check that out. You can go to rachelherron.com slash write, scroll to the bottom, and the information will be at the bottom there. So let's jump into the interview with Jeffrey. You're going to be his newest, biggest fan, um, but do not try to unseat me because I'm still um, in the front row. So you can sit next to me at the next show, but he's so great. Enjoy, please, and keep me posted on how you're doing, how your writing is going. You know that I always really want to know. And happy writing to you, my friends. Hey, writers. I've opened up some coaching slots. I'm not taking clients on a weekly basis right now as I'm working on my own books, but I am doing one-offs. I call them tune-ups. Tell me your plot problems and ask your character queries. Let me know what stumbling blocks you're up against. Get tips and tricks to get you back on the right track. Ask me questions about all things publishing. Together, we'll brainstorm your specific plan of action, making sure you're in the driver's seat of your book again. You'll receive a 30-minute call over Skype or FaceTime, giving you the honest encouragement you need to keep getting better. Or a polite ass-kicking, if that's what you need and ask for. Plus, you'll get an MP3 audio recording or MP4 video, your choice of our chat, so you can re-listen at your leisure. And if you want a little more help, I can also critique either 10 pages or your book's outline and talk you through my findings. Just check out rachelherron.com slash coach for more info. 
I'd love to work with you. Now on to the interview. I could not be more pleased to welcome Jeffrey Focalt to the show today. Hello, Jeffrey. Hello. How are you? I'm so thrilled and a little bit fangirlish, um, but let me give you a little bit of a bio before we start chatting. Um, Jeffrey Focalt lives out in New England in a little town with a river in the middle. He grew up in Wisconsin, and at uh, 19, he stole a copy of Towns Van Sant's Live and Obscure. At 24, he made a record and started traveling around the country. He has two older brothers who don't sing, but they both fish. He can't get home without crossing good water, and it barely makes up for living east, he says, which isn't in his blood. He has a chicken coop and a little barn and an old truck that runs. He likes to listen to records real loud when he does the dishes, and he does most of the dishes. And I have to say that as a bio, that shows why I love your work so much. You are a true poet of the earth, of the soil, of the land. And um, and I have to say that I have been a fan since Ghost Repeater came out. Um, and that was 2006, I just looked up. Uh, I, I can't remember where I found you, um, but I actually fell in love with your wife, the lovely Chris Dumhorst. Before that, I think it was on her first album. So I, that was before y'all were together. And yeah. um, and then and then when I found out that you were together, I thought, well, that is just something. That <laughs> I like that you kept talent that I love all in one house. And I was lucky enough to see you both at the Freight and Salvage um, a few months ago here in Berkeley. So oh, cool! Was, right, all right. That was a that was a great show. That was so fun to see both of you together. That I'd never seen both of you sing together. So, although I've seen you several times, but I've never had a songwriter on my show. So I'm really interested in process, um, and I would love to know what your writing process is like. Where where do the fertile and the fallow times come, and how do you how do you get that kind of work done? Uh, well, I think it's probably real similar to any other kind of writing discipline and it, it and it's discipline in the sense that it's something you have to be doing all the time. I mean, you know, so uh, people use, you know, writers write and if you're not writing yeah. and you're not putting yourself in the in the path of getting some kind of good work done, um, by making sure that you're the person who's sitting there uh <laughs> with a pencil or a typewriter or whatever it is, then uh you you know it doesn't matter how many good ideas you have because you you know you won't be in a in a place where you can get them down unless you just make a point of showing up there. So sorry, this is a pain in the ass. I will edit. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> just, you, know, this, you know, like I spend a bunch of time on the road, and we just are constantly dealing with technology and how much more complicated it makes everything for no apparent reason you know like i was trying to check into the hilton hotel in milwaukee i guess night before last and you know you just you stand there they have your credit card and they have your name and it's unclear what else they need and yet you, it takes 15 minutes for them to i don't know if they're playing like pac-man on the computer while they you know it takes for, for that's a good segue into the fact that you are on the road right now for the um, album Blood Brothers, which comes out the day this uh, episode releases. So if you're listening, it is out now. I have already pre-ordered it, of course. Um, what is your process like when you're on the road? Do you just give up songwriting when you're doing this kind of tour, or does it still 
do you still work on writing when you're out? Uh, I still work on writing. I'm not, it's more catch as catch can. When I'm home off the road, I tend to get up uh, early uh, and get the first couple hours of the, of the day while my wife and daughter are still asleep and the house is pretty mm-hmm. quiet. I like mm-hmm. to get up and, uh, you know, if it's not the dead of summer, I'll make a fire in the wood stove and I'll sit there. Uh, I often start by reading poetry in the morning because mm-hmm. I feel like it organizes my mind and it's, um, it's a good space to be in first thing in the morning to take something that isn't necessarily linear and let the language, you know, uh, hit your brain when your brain is, is not in a particularly linear organization anyway. You just came out of your dreams. Um, the writer Jim Harrison, uh, I went to his place a couple times and uh, just to, mostly to sit and commiserate with him. He, he, was, he had shingles at the end of his life and he wasn't in real good shape. And uh, um, so the first time I went to his place, uh, we went to just sit outside and, and you know, talk and and uh, drink a little wine and you know, kind of be company. And then we took we took him fishing on the Yellowstone one time. Me and my friend Chris Dombrowski, who's a, a writer as well. And uh, um, Harrison's deal was that he would you know he would work really frequently after sleeping so and he would organize his sleep schedule so he could be ready to work and uh he would you know we we one time we had dinner in his kitchen and then um we were leaving and it was probably seven o'clock and he was going to bed he had a bed in his office and uh he was going to go lay down and he he said he was going to sleep until about 11 and then he'd wake up and probably write right for two or three hours and then he'd go back to sleep and he'd He'd dream, and then he'd you know, he'd write again when he woke up uh, in the morning, and that was one of his techniques. I don't take it quite that far, but I do think that um, the early morning is pretty fertile time, and it it's not a time that's uh, entirely available to me on the road because, for instance, you know, most nights I'm going to be up until two or three. And then, uh, and then, you know, I could get up at seven and sometimes I do, but it's pretty rare, you know, or I, I'm certainly not up at five. So, uh, uh, writing on the road means keeping a notebook on your lap and writing down little fragments and lines and things as you're traveling along. But, you know, what the biggest difference, honestly, is if I have a driver, uh, if I have a driver on the tour, I can get a lot of, get a lot of work done. Um, or if I'm, you know, like I've taken tours in Europe where I was on the train, and uh, mm. if you're sitting, if you're sitting on the train. It's like the best place to to write songs. I mean, a good song to me is the equivalent of sitting on a train looking out the window. So I feel like <laughs> it's a it's a natural environment. I feel like the train, when I've written on trains, the train reorganizes my brain in a way that I cannot get anywhere else. There's mm. nothing like it. So there's, it's an interesting yeah. thing to think about, but the you know your brain physiologically you have an orienting response where your your brain is continually uh, assessing mm. the en- environment for change because change is often a threat. 
mm-hmm. historically speaking. And so when you, you know, when you stare at a fire and it continually flickers and changes shape, uh, that tends to stimulate that orienting response and, and trigger it over and over again. And it puts you in a, almost a trance-like state. It's why people watch TV when there's nothing on, you know, it's why, uh, it's why the little kids really shouldn't be watching TV because it messes with their uh, neural development. You yeah, know, you, we've all seen that little kid that watches too much TV, and and then they look kind of dazed the rest of the time because the rest of the world just seems to move too slowly. That may explain why I don't like to have a TV on ever. It's my worst worst nightmare to be in some kind of hospital with a television on because I, I it stresses me out so much. Unless I'm watching yeah. a fantastic show, and then of course I'm I'm just like anybody else and love to be in it. Yeah. Let me let me ask you too. Um, besides songs and your incredible newsletters that I know I'm I'm really fangirling, but when I get your newsletter, I get a lot of people's newsletters, you know. But I'll save yours to read later, even if I know that I'm not on, <laughs> you know, the tour. It's just it's just your kind of writing. Do you do other? Do you do any other writing? Have you ever had aspirations for a novel or anything like that? Uh, yeah, I have plenty of aspirations, and I haven't um, got too much farther than that. But I. I I I've started I kept what I call a record book which mostly because I felt like the word journal was sort of twee and overused but I <laughs> uh it, it it amounts to the same thing you know I I have one book where I'm writing um uh, songs poems grocery lists you know lists of things I need to get done and then I have one book that's usually sort of fair copy Songs where, you know, it might be the left side is a working draft and the right side is a fair copy. And I won't commit mm. to the right side until the left side seems to make some sense. Mm-hmm. But it allows me to move stuff around. And then I have a book where I'm just writing um, what's going on and how I feel about it. Um, not It's not therapeutic in the sense, uh, in, the, in the sort of stricter sense of like, I'm not assassinating anybody character or writing anything down that I wouldn't want somebody to read. It's not that private. It's it's essentially that I wanted to be a good writer and you have to write a lot of sentences to become a uh, even a halfway decent writer and begin to understand not only the mechanics of writing, but you have to get it out of your system, all your attempts to be clever. Uh, or to come off <laughs> yeah. as, as, as erudite, you know, it's, it's better to just be simple and, and clear. And even that takes a lot of practice. And with a lot of practice, you might have a, something that resembles a style emerge, uh, if you're lucky. And even that, that style may just be, um, something as simple as the way that you use commas or the way that you, uh, introduce ideas you know i have noticed that i have a tendency to be sort of recursive in the way that i present information and i almost never can get an entire idea out without using uh, dashes or parentheses because i like to <laughs> loop back and i don't know what I, that might just be that i always drink coffee when i'm working on stuff but <laughs> i always have three ideas where one would get by yeah, in your songs, of course, you you edit down, and that doesn't show at all. Your your songs are presented; they're just presented as plain fat with really surprising observations that seem mm. obvious 
when you hear them. Um, my wife and I always talk about, you know, the best country song is the one that you, when you hear it, you, you can't figure out how it wasn't always in the world. And, <laughs> and you know, and that's when yeah. you know something is working and, and your songs are like that to me. So, oh, it's just so cool to talk to you about this. What is your biggest challenge when it comes to writing? Um, well, first of all, thanks. That's very kind of you. Uh, and then biggest challenge. Uh, the biggest challenge is the internet. And I'll explain what I mean by saying that, uh, 10, 12 years ago, say, I, you know, you, the Princess Ghost Repeater, that record that you mentioned, I cut that in December of 2005 in Iowa City. Uh, I had the art in process, you know, I hired out the, the design to a guy down in Austin. Uh, that I that I liked his work and I'd seen his work at an exposition called Flatstock that they used to have at South by Southwest. I had the art in, in two months or so, and the master. You know, I think we mixed in January. The record was mastered by February. It was in the hands of the record label and and uh, being promoted overseas by March. And in April, I went on tour uh, in Europe and we released it there first for some obscure reason I no longer recall. And then we came back and we released it stateside in May. And that amount of time that elapsed, um, my main job was to get the record out into the world, but I hired a lot of it done and I had a record label to help me. And then otherwise, I was just home and I didn't have a kid yet and I was on the road a little bit, but uh, you know, sometimes you have to go kind of off the road for a little while while you're waiting for a record to come out. And um, I didn't have, outside of probably some email of a fairly mechanical nature, daily, you know, dealing with stuff with my manager at the time, I didn't have anything to do with the Internet. And I had no reason to, there was no MySpace, there was no Facebook, there was no Twitter, there was no Instagram. And all of these parallel platforms that we all shoehorn ourselves voluntarily into now and sort of get rid of anything that's interesting or uniquely identifying about what we do, uh, those things didn't exist. And I, I find that in the last five years or so, uh, somebody who's making art is required to also possess the skill set of um, a marketing uh, uh, account, mm-hmm. you know, manager and a brand manager mm-hmm. and a social media advertiser and an enterprising pimp. And I don't, uh, yeah. I don't really enjoy any of that work. I actually, I, I, I know how to do it and I, I've been talked into it by the people who I work with because, you know, your agent wants to book you shows and you make their life more difficult by hiding. Not being willing to, you know, to, to, to do stuff. Or the clubs, you know, like it used to be the club was called a promoter and a promoter promoted a show because you didn't live there. You lived 3,000 miles away and it was real hard for you to tell anybody. But now because of the flat landscape of the digital economy, I'm as responsible for promoting a show in Berkeley as the promoter is in Berkeley. And that sucks. Well, it's, and it's, yeah, it's, it's expensive for one. You yeah. Know? I mean, I, when a record comes out, you might have a publicist out. But anyway, this is all this is all just the dross of my mind. We're, we were talking about writing, 
what I find difficult is separating the part of me that is a frustrated um, businessman who has to sit there doing data entry work from the person who should be spending all of his time writing music, playing music, recording music, and thinking about music. And that sort of watertight bulkhead operation in my mind and soul is difficult to maintain at all times. And I, fi- I feel like the, the frustration with the our sort of fake internet world uh, bleeds over into my uh, into my work life in a way that I find pretty much unacceptable. I'm trying to, I'm beginning to think about ways to just drop out, which I think they mostly all add up to making less money and playing for less people, <laughs> and, and which it may just have to be the way it goes. You know? Yeah. I, I kind of break myself up into a writer in the morning and a marketer in the afternoon. But yeah. I have to tell you that I hate afternoons. <laughs> you know? yeah. well, really like yeah, it's like a recipe for alcoholism, I think. I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I, I am at, I'm actually in recovery, so yes. <laughs> okay, well, there you go. Right, so it, it can be very difficult to uh, to get through the day and then try to take all that stuff and 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 find a healthy place to. Um, deal with it as opposed to just either tapping it down or, or drowning it. Yeah. You know? Yep. I choose to drown it. I've been doing this thing instead of drinking at night, I get in the bath. So I'm <laughs> done with the marketing. It works pretty well. <laughs> what yeah. is your biggest yeah. joy in writing? Um, the only part of writing uh, that I find really joyful as opposed to satisfying is the, uh, discovery of meaning in the sense mm-hmm. that I, you, your brain coughs up something that you don't have any real authorship of. I mean, you, you, mm-hmm. you, um, you're accessing something that's outside of you. That's what it seems like to me. So, yeah. um, and, you know, I mean, there's a, there's a empirical, uh, biologist, uh, scientist named Rupert Sheldrake that, um, Billy and I read, uh, some of his stuff. Billy is my, is my drummer, uh, or rather, I guess yeah. I'm a, I'm his <laughs> singer, perhaps. Um, anyway, we talk about this guy, Sheldrake, in the car a lot because he has an idea about memory and its relationship to genomic expression, uh, Essentially, his idea is that we don't understand uh, genetics very well, and we don't understand how information uh, travels between human beings. One of his ideas is that memory doesn't exist in your brain any more than a picture exists inside a television set. It's a transmission from somewhere else, and what he calls a, a morphic field or a field determined by shape uh, and relationship the same way that gravity, for instance, is a field that we treat it like a fact, but the truth is gravity is uh, an unseen um, uh, behavior of forces that we don't entirely uh, understand, mm-hmm. you know, from a mechanical aspect. And I think there's a good argument to be made that memory works the same way. And what's interesting to me is when I'm when I am tuned into the broadcast of uh, 
the rest of humanity, whatever that is. I mean, you know, you dream about people at night and you see their faces and those are people you never met, right? Do they, do they exist? Did you see them somewhere in passing and your brain just uh, trotted them out for your entertainment at night? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, I think um, all that human information probably resides on a, on a different plane of existence altogether. Not unlike some of the religious ideas, you know, the Akashic record or that sort of thing. And uh, the joyful part of writing to me is when you are pretty sure, and that, this is truthfully the joyful part of playing music too, it's when you tap into that thing, when you become, um, you put yourself in relationship to it as opposed to that feeling of authorship, you know, which is where you start when, you know. It's such a leap of ego when you're a youngster to be like, I have some ideas that people really need to hear. <laughs> right? I mean, and all writers it's, it's, have that, you know. Well, I, must, sure. I must tell my truth. <laughs> yeah, and it's, you know, it's mostly silliness, but there's some communicative urge that we all seem to seem to have. You know, Harrison had a great line about, on you know, writers, what writers have in common is an overweening, sense of personal destiny uh and i've always thought that was a great a great way to describe it but you know uh the truth is the the best stuff doesn't really have that much to do with you the satisfaction comes when you have created something wherever it came from and then you go back and you get to shape it you know work on it the way that you'd work on a, a painting or a poem or a yeah. sculpture or something that's that's very there's a calm version of joy that, that attends to that but I don't um, um, I feel like I know some people who don't enjoy writing and yet they write and I've always wondered what that was about uh, you know I know a lot of people who enjoy having written songs but mm -hmm. they don't particularly mm -hmm. enjoy the process or they find the process disconcerting or and I've, I've always felt like if you're doing it right it feels more like a story that you never quite come to the end of, you know, you, you're always excited to pick it up and look into it. I always feel like it's a story that I, I, I'm i never going to get quite right either. It turns mm -hmm. out right when I'm done, when I'm done with a book or, or a project, it turns out that it, it comes out the way it was meant to be, but my vision never comes true, that's which is fine. I think that's, that's, question, a, that's a, yeah, yeah, and for me, that calm joy that you mentioned comes to me in the revision process which I love more than anything else about writing and yeah. describing it as calm joy is exactly exactly that it can be frustrating and, and all of the other things but but the the clarity that you're in the right place when you're doing that revision is is just one of the best things in the world to me yeah yeah I always felt like when I was getting going and the, I mean there are parallels obviously here uh, I think in terms of music as much as I think in terms of writing and um, when I was a youngster, uh, there were a lot of things I had to learn. You know, you begin by just learning how to how to play a guitar, or in my case, a guitar, and sing, right? Uh, and those, there's a steep learning curve. You're never quite done learning either of those things. Um, but you learn the basic mechanics. And then the moment you know what you're doing, you say, oh, right, well, now I'm going to cut a record. And the first thing you do is sing into a microphone with some headphones on, neither of which you've ever done in your life. Doesn't make any sense. Uh -huh. 
right? So the first thing you do is change everything about the way you do it. Uh, so again, there's a new learning curve that you have to learn how to use the studio and the various methods of engineering that create different sounds. And then, then you start thinking about, all right, well, I love how this person plays and I love how this person plays and I hire these people and then we're going to play together. And that's a new thing. And then maybe it doesn't sound anything like what you thought it would. And that mm -hmm. distance between what you were dis describing and writing, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a golf between conception and execution and I felt like when I was just starting I would I would be like you know here I want to make this record and I would have an idea what I wanted to do and man it never turned out anything like what I was going for it just <laughs> didn't and then the further I went along that I would narrow that gap between conception and execution but the truth is mm -hmm. Once you know how to do something, it becomes drastically uninteresting. So uh, you have you have to be willing to mess it up and sort of lob a hand grenade in the uh, you know in the middle of it and then see what happens. I, I've always been interested in people that yeah, you know, like I have a friend who was used to tech uh, for Neil Young. And he said, the moment everybody, and this is a major crew, multiple buses, you know, uh, people who are, you know, doing lighting, people who are doing sound, people who are checking all the instruments, all that stuff. And then, you know, just the people who make, you keep it, keep it all in the, in the rails, tour managers, stuff like that. And he said, the moment this team of people knew exactly what they were doing in the show was, was just, uh, running in grease grooves, Neil Young would change the entire thing. Because he hated it when when people were comfortable, and I at the time I was I thought that was sort of perverse, and then uh, now I totally understand why you would do that because there has to be that uncertainty because that's where interesting things happen. There's that great uh, David Bowie quote that I'm going to mangle, but it's something like um if you feel like you're in the part of the pool where you're about to drown, then you're exactly in the right place. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it's help. It's it's uh, it's it's just healthy to have a certain amount of. I don't know. There's a you know there's a relationship between fear and mastery, and there's room for both of those things. They have to exist in a sort of countervailing uh, apparatus. And uh, I'm, I'm you know I'm out on the road, for instance, right now with a bunch of guys who are. Um, decidedly masters of the instruments that they play and real mastery requires not only of course you know 10,000 hours and all the all the sort of um, you know Oprah style you know, like jargoning that we all know about but I, <laughs> it, it specifically requires uh, to my mind it requires this human approach like there's a there's an aspect of humanity that that enters into real mastery so that you know when i hear my guys setting up for example the first time i hear billy hit the drums uh it's billy and he sounds like he hit the drum with perfect intention and i mm -hmm. and that's 
you hear somebody plug in a guitar and immediately start, you know, wanking away and you think, well, that's not interesting at all. Even if they know all the notes in the world, it's not that interesting. But you hear somebody mm-hmm. plug in and if they play with intention, that they bring that mastery to it. They're always ready, right? They like they're always ready to play. Uh, there's there must be an analog in in writing. Um, I'm sure you know. You could, I remember reading Kerouac's letters where he's talking about his batting average. It was how he described uh, the number of words that he could crank out in a day. And obviously, this is Kerouac we're talking about. But I thought that idea, the bat, that you know, the sort of batting average. It was interesting that he was he was thinking in terms of his ratio of success on any given day, like that he knew he was in a place where he was where he was making good work, you know. That's an interesting mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, I I a lot of times I'll have a word count goal for the day, and it does feel you know it's just it's just business. I sit down and I hopefully write with intention, but. But generally, it's about 2,000 words a day. And um, and I know every day that right around word 800 is where my brain kicks in and it suddenly starts to become what it needs to become. But those first 800 words are usually thrown away because they're just, they're just, they're, they're my warm-up, you know? Well, um, that's a really valuable yeah. lesson. You know, anybody that writes, you learn as you, as you go along that all of the stuff that you did that seemed to be a blind alley was dra- was just really important and it, you had to write through the stuff that didn't go anywhere in order to write the stuff that went somewhere and when you're 22 you think well everything that you know <laughs> everything that, that I come up with has to be genius like from the beginning without and, requiring edits even it comes out right, perfectly and, and if it and if it didn't work, it would never occur to you at that point to set it aside and come back to it later, or to take it apart, sort of tinker with it, and see on a purely architectural level what made it sound or unsound, and then compost it and say, you know, there's a cool line here, and and ten years from now that line's going to make it into a song, and that and it's true, but you need the ten years to figure out that it's true. And that's yeah. that's where you you know that's where there's some value in being the wily veteran as opposed to the uh, strong youngster. I don't know. Heck yeah, heck yeah. <laughs> well, we veered off questions, and I don't want to take too much more of your time, but this has been fantastic. Can you please tell us about Blood Brothers? What was the, what's the impetus for this? Um. Well. Let's see. I mean, the impetus for the record was simply enough that it was it was um, time for me to make a record. It's you know you want to be putting out an album every couple of years. Uh, mm-hmm. I have never been real strict about that, and I've never been real strict. I always tried to let the creative process take me wherever I was going, and where you know, and frequently where you go is is the place where you need some work. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, there were a few years after I made that Ghost Repeater record where, okay, I pretty much had made a record I knew how to make, um, and it was about about right as a snapshot of what I was capable of doing at the time. But you know, every 
every book or every album is going to be sort of not all baseball, you know, like it's one version of all these other things that feed into it. So you listen to that record and you're like, all right, well, this is basically like a, a, a bunch of country and folk songs played with a, with a, with a band that, that bends them toward the blues a little bit. Because mm-hmm. Bo is essentially a, a blues guitar player. Uh, and, you know, that rhythm section kind of worked that way too. Well, did that give you any indication that I listened to Led Zeppelin for most of the year I was 14? Probably not, you know. <laughs> or that the first record I ever bought was Little Richard, you know, like early rock and roll was in there. Or, um, you know, that I could play bottleneck slide guitar. Like, I didn't play bottleneck slide guitar in public until I'd been doing it for 20 years or something, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so finding ways to sort of shore up your your deal has always been interesting to me and going off into the woods a little bit. And, you know, so I made a couple side projects. Here's one of, you know, where I was sort of investigating the influence of John Prine on my own work as I started playing by learning John Prine songs. So there's one that was all murder ballads. That was just kind of a lark. I don't even remember how we started doing that. And then there was one where I was collaborating with a poet, um, my friend Lisa Olstein, whose books come out on Copper Canyon Press. And I was collaborating with a poet, which was great because it allowed me to shelve my egotism about the language and really be more of a curator of language. And also it allowed me to this freedom that I hadn't felt before to, you know, write a rock and roll song and take the paint off the walls. And uh, so, you know, that first one is is uh, the satellite, uh, the cold satellite records. There were two, and you know, the, the first one's more like, somewhere between the faces and the Rolling Stones and the second one, you know, there's a bunch of pretty pretty sideways, pretty heavy duty rock and roll uh, on that on that record. So, you know, you, you go out and you do all these things. The the new record, I felt like one, it's time to make a record and two there's a record that I felt like I was leaning toward that involves um steel body resonator guitar and my electric guitar playing and I wasn't ready to make that record neither of those things ended up on this record what I did was I booked a studio I wrote most of the songs in about six weeks and I made a record that I knew how to make Mm -hmm. um, using pretty traditional lyrical sort of narrative structures um, and pretty tried, I tried pretty consciously to be fairly simple and to avoid a lot of heavy metaphorical language. A lot of these songs are, are, are fairly straightforward, um, and they rely on what's told and when it's told and how it's told, as opposed to using a lot of abstraction in the, in the, in the language. And I made that record that I knew how to make, and I played acoustic guitar the way I knew how to play it really to buy myself the time to make a more complicated record that involves a little more uncertainty because I, you know, it's time to make a record. And I think in terms of body of work, I really don't think in terms of um, having a hit like ever yeah. in my life. That's not something I expect. So <laughs> Me too. Uh, Me too. Right. I, I so you're, you know. producing books and, and maybe, yeah, yeah I, I don't, I don't think I'll ever have a big hit, but I just, I just keep writing. Yeah. yeah, and if 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 the need for a big hit is your driving deal, I mean maybe that's a, maybe that's a good engine for your work or or something, but it's 
if it's going to make you upset or bitter, then, then it's probably not a healthy place to be. You know, like what's interesting to me is paying the mortgage and mm-hmm. paying, you know, and paying my the people I work with who are beautiful musicians and great company. Like I want to pay them fairly so they can pay their mortgage, and mm-hmm. uh, that requires a certain amount of just labor on my part, and. Uh, it's time to put a record out and time to tour that record. And, and so I made a record that I knew how to make. And I'm and actually, it took me a while. You never know with an album. Sometimes it's probably this way with a book too. Sometimes you know exactly what you're doing the whole time. And in spite of yourself, perhaps, you know exactly what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes you have no idea. Uh, it's the difference between being on the crest of a wave and being up over the horizon, being able to see everything real clearly in the different, or, or being in the trough of the wave and all mm-hmm. everywhere you look is just blue. And, uh, this, this one, I, I really, <laughs> what's interesting, I, and I, I'm sure you feel the same way because I, I'm, sh- I, I would be willing to bet it's the same for people who make art in a general way, but, um, you can do something where you know what you're, what you're doing and, you can walk away from that with a certain amount of confidence. Uh, you're like, all right, I got this down. I'm like, I know what I'm doing now, you know. And and there's even there's even an element of almost swagger in it. And then mm-hmm. no matter who you think you are, uh, some time will go by and you will be in the woods again. And <laughs> all of that swagger will just seem ridiculous. And you will think, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And uh, this record, I couldn't even really hear hear it very clearly. I could hear all the constituent elements of it, but I, it was difficult for me to get any sense of what was there right up until it was already mastered and it was going away. And at the last moment, I cut one song off of it. Uh, we recorded 16. I had a 12-song um, sequence cut that down to an 11 song sequence and committed to getting the record mastered, which is the last step. And then there was a mechanical issue with the, with the master and it gave me the opportunity to reconsider. And I was like, you know what, there's a 10 song record and I'm cutting off this one sort of, it was a blues uh, rock and roll song that just didn't fit with the rest of the song, which is a more lil mm-hmm. or the rest of the album, which is a more lilting album that really doesn't rely on the blues form at all or even I mean there's one sort of quasi rock and roll tune but you know that's it and um so I got rid of that one and then I you know and then all of a sudden I was like oh that's the record and ever since I've kind of had a picture of it in my mind but it you know it takes a sometimes it takes a long time you gotta get away from it before you get that sense of the outline of everything yeah Sometimes I have the books that I swear write themselves and I turn around and they're, and they're done. And then the other ones I have that I, I fight the whole way and I, I hate everything about them the whole way. And then there's this one moment where something just shunks into place and it becomes what it was meant to be and it's, and it's worth the agony. But, um, but it's hard. That's hard. Yep. So yeah. I, I, mean, I can't it's wait to get It's not as hard. It's not a, oh, thanks. I was just going to say, no, it, it is hard. Well, I think about this a lot. I was I was corresponding with my friend Dave Moore, who's a great songwriter from Iowa, 
who I just saw, but leading up to our, our, our playing in Iowa, I was on, you know, we were like writing letters back and forth. Uh, and he was, we were sort of commiserating about some of the difficulty with, that I described with dealing with the inner, inner web and all the nonsense that you are sort of forced to wade through. And it's hard, right? And uh, some of the, some of the frustration that goes along with creative work is also hard. And then at the same time, I always think to myself, like, uh, I had a job where I had to be up at 4.45 and walk in, in the Wisconsin winter to, uh, uh, maintenance shop and, and service cars. It was, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like service cars, you know, like top up the oil and all the fluids and clean the whole thing and make sure the windows are clean and then turn them back out into service. It was that, I wasn't doing the engines. I was just like servicing cars, like a moron kind of job. And I was wearing a mechanics jumpsuit and, um, and I was exhausted. Most, most of the time I was going to bed early and it was a really, hard job you know like cleaning bathrooms is a hard job mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh most of the people in the world have a much harder job than i do so i always i always think to myself like you know it's very it's most of the people in the world uh are having a difficult time and it's, it's hard to take special pleading from a songwriter <laughs> <laughs> i feel the same way about being a novelist there's i'm 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 not digging a ditch today Although I, I just realized that's a lie. I do need to go put in a tree. But yeah. <laughs> it'll be a very, very small ditch, and it's my choice. So, right. Well, it, it, everybody, listeners, go grab uh, Blood Brothers by Jeffrey Folkalt, and it has been such an honor to talk to you today. Thank you for taking time out of the tour to talk to me and um, dealing with technical issues. And I hope that Absolutely. the rest of your tour goes goes smoothly. No, No more tech glitches and that you just have a marvelous time and that it flies off the shelves. Well, thank so. you very much, Rachel. It was a pleasure to, uh, to get oh. to talk to you. Thanks so much. Take care. All right. Bye. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of How Do You Write? You can reach me on Twitter, Rachel Heron, or at my website, rachelheron.com. You can also support me on Patreon and get essays on living your creative life for as little as a buck an essay at patreon.com slash Rachel, spelled R-A-C-H-A-E-L. And do sign up for my free weekly newsletter of encouragement to writers at rachelheron.com slash write. Now go to your desk and create your own process. Get to writing, my friends.